Thank you for listening to The Real Deal with Damian Adams. This is Real Sports Talk for the Real Sports Fan. And I definitely appreciate you Real Sports fans who are listening right now. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please do me a huge favor and leave this podcast a five-star rating. That one, two, three, four, fifth, that five-star rating review will definitely be appreciated. If you're listening on any other platform, that could be Podomatic, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever, please share from that platform so that your friends and family can see the podcast, listen to the podcast, subscribe, and then share with their friends and family. I'm trying to get this podcast to the highest levels of podcastivity, and I need your help to get there. It'll be truly, truly appreciated. We've got a big-time episode for you guys today. We have what I call a basketball boxing sandwich, right? We're going to end the show with my top 10 individual playoff runs of all time. We're watching one right now in Nikola Yogic, so it made me think I should go back to that list and review and recap it with you guys that I have for my top 10 individual playoff runs of all time. And maybe at the end of this playoff run, Nikola Jokic will crack that list. We'll see. In the middle, talking a lot of boxing. We got a big boxing weekend. We got Josh Taylor versus Teofimo Lopez. We got to preview that fight. We also have Jaime Mugia versus Sergey. Deverinchenko, right? If I'm messing up that last name, I apologize, but Deverinchenko knows that it's no ill will. <laughs> but we got to talk about that and also the drama going on at Golden Boy Promotions. Got to get into the latest episode of The Real Housewives of the Squared Circle. But to start the show, to begin the sandwich, of course, we got to talk about the NBA Finals, which is now tied at one game apiece between the Miami Heat and the Denver Nuggets. So let's get into it. So game one, Denver defeated Miami 104-93. to Bam Adebayo was very aggressive in that game, went 13 for 25, finished with 26 points, 13 rebounds, and 5 assists. Jimmy Butler, not so aggressive, 13 points, 7 assists, 7 rebounds, 6 of 14 from the field. Gabe Vincent had a big game, 19 points, 7 of 14 from the field. Caleb Martin did not show up, only 3 points scored. In game one, and a surprise off the bench that really kept Miami in this game, especially in the fourth quarter, was my man Haywood Highsmith, 18 points on 7 of 10 shooting. For Denver, you had Jamal Murray with 26 points and 10 assists on 50% shooting. Michael Porter Jr. had 14 points, 13 rebounds. Not the best shooting game, 5 of 16 for MPJ. Nikola Jokic had 27 points. 14 assists and 10 rebounds, another triple-double on a very efficient night, 8 of 12 from the field. And Aaron Gordon really set the tone in this game. I called for him to be aggressive, said that he could be the X-Factor because of their size advantage. He definitely took advantage of that in the first quarter and was part of Denver building that lead as he finished with 16 points, 6 rebounds on 7 of 10 shooting. For the game, Miami shot 40% from the field and 33% from three. Just an awful shooting night for them. Denver shot 50% from the field and 29% from three. So it wasn't like they were killing it. It was a low-scoring game, 104-93, to which plays more into Miami style. They want to muck it up, slow it down, make you execute everything that you're doing. And you saw that for the fourth quarter in game one, you really saw that. Now, Denver outscored Miami in the first three quarters. 
Then in the fourth quarter, Miami outscored Denver by 10 points. Now, I feel like a lot of us watching the game thought maybe that was just garbage points. Maybe that was just Denver taking their foot off the gas because they had built such a lead throughout the game. But I feel like that was foreshadowing of what we saw in game two. In that fourth quarter, Miami was able to force turnovers. They were able to get easy buckets. And even though they want to slow the game down, they do need those easy buckets that you get from the turnovers, from transition, to be able to at least score in that way to separate themselves from their opponent. And it's not like Miami didn't get good shots. They just weren't hitting at all, right? I mentioned Caleb Martin only having three points. You see, and I didn't even add Max Struess to that stat rundown. He was horrible. He went 0 for 10 in that game. So their shooters just didn't show up, really. And Jimmy Butler wasn't aggressive. Bam Adebayo was the only one that really, from the start, came with it in that game. And they only lost by 11. And it was a low-scoring game for Denver. And a lot of people after game one were saying, oh, this could be a sweep because Miami shot so bad and because the game truly wasn't that exciting, right? It didn't really pull your attention like game two did. But Miami found some things in game one, especially in the fourth quarter that translated to game two. So in game two, Miami was able to defeat Denver 111 to 108. And I'm not going to lie to you, in the second quarter, I thought Denver was going to pull away. I thought this was going to be another game where you see Denver's, you know, avalanche come down and really leave their opponent with nowhere to go or no options, no answers. And it was funny because it came during the non-Jokic minutes. Jokic usually sits during the beginning of the second quarter and you saw Denver take off with Bruce Brown and Christian Brown and Jeff Green. Uh, Bruce Brown, his plus minus for the game was plus 14. Jeff Green was plus 12. Christian Brown was plus 8. So their three bench guys they trust really did their thing in this game. But it wasn't enough as the starters outside of Nikola Jokic were not able to really get in the rhythm in this game at all. So for the Denver Nuggets, you had Nikola Jokic who went crazy. 41 points on 16 of 28 shooting. 11 rebounds, 4 assists. Jamal Murray, 18 points, 10 assists, so it sounds good, but it took him quite a while to start to hit some shots. A lot of those points came in the fourth quarter where he did pull Denver back into it, but if those shots would have came earlier, maybe they're not in that position. Aaron Gordon had 12.7 rebounds, efficient night, a good Aaron Gordon night, but it wasn't what you need from Aaron Gordon in this series. I think Aaron Gordon truly is the X factor. They need him to be aggressive. And just because Miami changed the starting lineup and put Kevin Love in, I know Kevin Love is bigger and has more size to deal with Aaron Gordon compared to a Max Struess or a Gabe Vincent or whoever else they try to put on him. But Aaron Gordon is so much more athletic than Kevin Love. I still would like him to be aggressive even with Kevin Love in the game. And if Kevin Love gets exposed for not being able to stop him, where does Miami go then? So I feel like that was an opportunity missed by Denver and by Aaron Gordon to still be aggressive even with Miami making that adjustment good call by Coach Spo to go to Kevin Love and to add that size because he definitely needed it 
and Kevin Love still a very good rebounder at this stage of his career and <laughs> great outlet passes. I made a joke that you should get you somebody who talks about you the way Jeff Van Gundy and Mark Jackson talk about Kevin Love's outlet passes. They, <laughs> they definitely make sure that they know or they show you that Kevin Love's outlet passes are appreciated. Make sure you get somebody who appreciates you that same way. Because if it's not, then it's not true love. It's not true love at that point. But Kevin Love did a good job in this game when he was in. Uh, Jimmy Butler had 21 points, 9 assists on 7 of 19 shooting. Wasn't, you know, what you expect from Jimmy Butler. I do think Jimmy Butler is a superstar. That's one of the big debates going on right now. Is Jimmy Butler a superstar? I believe he is because he can get to a point where he can carry a team. We've seen it during this playoff run. We've seen it during other playoff runs where he's clearly the best player on a team that's in the NBA Finals. It's not... This team can remind you of a team like the 2004 Pistons, but I believe Jimmy Butler has more on his shoulders compared to a Chauncey Billups, right? Like, he is a true superstar even in this collective effort he still stands out as a superstar and we expect more of him now he may be a little hurt but everybody is right now so i'm not going to allow that to be an excuse he has to be more aggressive but in the fourth quarter he did make some big plays to keep miami ahead in this one that's what a superstar does you also had in this game bam out of bio with 21 points and nine rebounds on eight of 14 shooting gabe vincent man 23 points, 8 of 12 shooting, just balling in this series. Max Struess, big comeback game in this one. 14 points, hit four three-pointers. And Duncan Robinson, fourth quarter, 10 points, was major. And they shot much better in this game. 48% from the field and 48% from three. Definitely makes a big difference right there. As Denver shot better as well, but... The defense and the mucking it up and the slowing down of the pace that Miami does was able to get this game in the right range for them scoring-wise, even with Denver shooting 52% from the field and 39% from three. And in the fourth quarter, Miami outscored Denver 36-25. to So you look at games one and two, Miami has outscored Denver in the fourth quarter by 21 points so far. That's the series right now. Game one became a game in the fourth quarter because Miami executes better in the fourth. They're not going to beat themselves. They're going to execute in those pressure moments. Game two, Denver builds a lead in the second quarter. They hold on to it in the third. Fourth quarter, Miami goes on a run and they out-execute Denver. So how do you change that? How do you execute better in the fourth quarter? How do you stop Miami from getting what they want in those moments? So the first thing that I would say that Denver has to do to adjust is again, when it does slow down, use Aaron Gordon. Nikola Jokic is amazing. Can't stop him. He's going to get his. If he wants a 30-point triple-double, he can get that. But what makes him most dangerous is when he's passing the ball and getting those you know, 10 plus assists. Part of that is having Aaron Gordon dive to the rim, have Aaron Gordon post up in deep post up position to where as soon as he gets it, he goes up with the layup or the dunk, easy assist for whoever's giving him the ball. 
And again, I believe you can do that to Kevin Love as well, but you also can get switches. You could run actions to where they have to switch it. Next thing you know, have Aaron Gordon posting up a Gabe Vincent or posting up whoever it is, Max Struess, where he has that advantage. And I believe they could do that in the fourth quarter as well as the first like they did in game one. For Miami, they're doing a great job in this series of making it a Miami series. Low scoring, you have to execute. You have your fast breaks here and there on turnovers, but for the most part, we're going to slow it down. We're going to execute. Now, you do want Jimmy Butler to be more aggressive. You want him to command that attention that he commanded against the Bucks, that he commanded against the Knicks for the most part, and make it easy for his teammates. But his teammates have stuffed up. You have to give credit to Gabe Vincent. Duncan Robinson, Max Struess, Kyle Lowry at times. Even if Lowry's not scoring, he's making some type of impact by speeding up the pace when he comes in, by mucking it up. Again, I have to use that word because that's what Kyle Lowry does. Taking charges, just being there, getting offensive rebounds. Like, he does all the things that you need somebody to do to help you win games. And they have all those players. Uh, Denver definitely is the more talented team, but we've seen Miami against more talented teams. And their execution and the fact that they're not going to beat themselves keeps them in games. It gets them victories. So game three is going to be very, very interesting in Miami. I'm still going with Denver in six. I know Miami fans are like, dang, when are you going to pick us? I did. I picked y'all against the Knicks. I did. But I still don't see this Denver team being held up like this all series being mucked down all series. Again, get Aaron Garden involved early and late. Get him on mismatch. Because Kevin Love is the only one who has the size outside of Bam and Cody Zeller, but those guys will be tied up with Jokic. So Aaron Gordon, you get him on switches, on mismatches. He has easy access, either to drive and body or to post up. Jamal Murray, continue doing what he's doing with him. He's going to get those shots. Miami did adjust and try to make it harder on him. That's when you run him off ball. Right? You have those actions where someone comes down and he's by the baseline. They set down a pin down screen. Then he runs all the way to the top around Jokic to get that open shot. And if they come out on his open shot, passes to Jokic, and Jokic gets to make a play from there. So you just run more off ball action off-ball action for Jamal Murray. Nikola Jokic, he could continue doing what he does, get Aaron Gordon involved more in the offense from a post perspective and creating mismatches for him. For Miami, offensively, Gene Butler has to be more aggressive because it's going to be a game like game one. There's going to be another game like that where the other shooters just don't have it that night. You need Jimmy Butler to show up and be that superstar that a lot of us think that he is. So I'm going with Denver in six. I do think that Denver wins game three in Miami. Aaron Gordon, big game in that one. Jamal Murray usually doesn't have two bad games in a row from an efficient standpoint. So look for him to be better as well. Mike Malone will make adjustments. Spo may be the best coach in the game, but Mike Malone is definitely not to sneeze at. So I see the adjustments being made. I see Denver scoring better 
and trying to keep a better pace in game three and going forward. So we'll see, man. This has been a good NBA final so far. A lot of people are shocked by that. They thought that Denver was going to walk through Miami. That's not what we've seen so far. And I'm excited about it, man. I can't wait for game three. So we're going to go ahead and take our first music break. When I come back, we're going to get into some boxing. A lot of boxing to get into. We'll be right back. Sunrise, sometimes 
I love to hear my woman moaning the tone again. Damn, I hope we play this song again. The soul cleansing, the melody just read my engine. Heard a lot of things, but you just offended my leg. You've been searching for Benjamin's. All my folks locked in the tenements, and it don't make any sense. Why? Children are sentencing, broadcasting from the slums. That's why I'm writing these sentences. Along with my income, why? Go ahead, finish. Welcome back to The Real Deal with Damian Adams. Hopefully you enjoyed that music break that was Nappy Roots and Anthony Hamilton. Classic throwback right there. And now let's get into a little boxing, which we have a big boxing weekend coming up this weekend. And one of the cards is headlined by Hami Mugia versus Sergei Devrinchenko. Mugia is 41-0 with 33 knockouts. 26 years old, going against Sergei Devrinchenko, who's 14 and 4, 10 knockouts. With those four losses, though, they've all come within his last six fights. So at this stage of his career, he's no longer a world title challenger. He's what you call a gatekeeper. And the reason that I don't really like the booking of this fight is that. Hamid Megia should be past the gatekeeper phase of his career. So when I say a gatekeeper, that's a fighter who is still good. He's not trash. He's still good. But for some reason, he just hasn't gotten to the point where he can get over the hump. So because of that, He's become a guy who's right in front of that gate for young fighters to get through and get to world title opportunities. Jaime Mejia has already beat several gatekeeper type fighters. You look at his resume, he's beat Gary O'Sullivan, a gatekeeper. He's beat Torino Johnson, a gatekeeper. That was his last fight. He beat Camille Zarameta, who probably didn't think of himself as a gatekeeper, but after that fight against Triple G where it was proven that he's nowhere near world title type guy, he became a gatekeeper. Gabe Rosado, the ultimate gatekeeper. So he's already had these types of fights. And ever since he moved up from 154... He's been the most protected guy in boxing. I'm talking about Jaime Mugia. And it doesn't make sense to me. In this game where you're fighting for money, power, and respect, I'm losing respect for Mugia and his team because they're shying away from the real competition. Now, I know this is no disrespect to Sergei Devrinchenko. None at all. But at this stage of his career... He shouldn't be taking on Jaime Mugia. 
Jaime Mejia should be trying to fight for either a middleweight title or trying to put his name into the 168-pound title hat. Now, at 168 is a little different because Canelo has all the titles at 168. So he has to fight someone like a Caleb Plant or David Morrell or whoever else is up there at 168. Maybe a Demetrius Andrade. And then once he would defeat them, if so, he can get his name into that hat. But instead of doing that, he's taking on Sergey Devranchenko. So because he loves taking on these gatekeepers so much, I feel like he should have a new nickname. The Gate Taker or the Gatekeeper Beater. Nah, that doesn't, nah, that doesn't really have a good ring to it. Uh, white Picket? Nah, 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 not that one. I'm trying to come up with a gate-related nickname for Jaime Mejia because that's what he does. He beats up the gatekeepers. He's already been through the gate. Like, there's no need for him to continue to go outside and find another door to go through. He's already through it. But for some reason, Golden Boy is protecting this guy as if he needs to be wrapped in bubble wrap. And when you already have 40 plus wins, 33 by knockout, you're in your prime, what are we waiting for? What are we doing? You're supposed to be taking on the best of the best at this point. You know, people are be like, dang, man, you really shitting on Sergey Devranchenko. Yes, I am. But it's no disrespect to him intentional, right? Like, he just happens to be the gatekeeper in this particular moment. Once Mugia defeated Gary O'Sullivan and defeated Gabe Rosado, there's no need for these type of fights anymore. And the zone is trying to promote it as if this is some super tough fight, which Devin Chinko's a tough guy. He's hard to knock out. He probably will go the distance. But Mugia's probably going to win if it's a 10-round bout. It's main event, so it'll probably be 12. 12-round 12 bout. He's probably going to win 9 rounds to 3. 10 to 2. Somewhere in that range. And he'll get some rounds. Sergey will make him work. But again, that's supposed to be for the young up-and-coming fighter. Not the guy who already has 41 wins on his resume. Which brings me to Golden Boy. What are you doing? There's so much drama going around Golden Boy and their choices. Talk about Jaime McGee not getting the title shot that he needs to get right now. Not fighting the best of the best. You got Ryan Garcia and Oscar De La Hoya on the last episode of The Real Housewives of the Square Circle. Going back and forth on social media. And Ryan Garcia, I'm not going to take all of the blame off of him. He definitely deserves some blame. He needs to grow up a little bit. But he is young. Oscar De La Hoya? Come on, bro. Come on, bro. What, you in your 50s now? Damn near? If not yet? And there's been several reports from fighters themselves, like Canelo, saying that Golden Boy Promotions 
doesn't look out for the fighters, they're looking out for themselves. So all the execs and the upper management guys aren't looking out for the fighters. And you would think the reason that fighters sign with Golden Boy is because the head of Golden Boy is Oscar De La Hoya, someone who's been through the things that the boxers are going through now. And he's been to the top of the mountaintop, he's lost in big fights, he's been through everything that a boxer would go through. And also had to deal with being a star right away and knows what that brings. So you would think someone like Oscar De La Hoya would be perfect as a promoter for these young fighters. But instead, we're getting reports of fighters like Canelo who left saying that Golden Boy didn't care about the fighters. You got Ryan Garcia now calling him out for having a mole in his camp, for not supporting him after he lost to Javante Davis. And if anybody knows that you're going to lose in boxing, no matter how good you are, unless you're Floyd Mayweather, it's Oscar De La Hoya. Oscar De La Hoya is a Hall of Famer, but he has six losses on his record. So he knows the odds of you going undefeated are very, very low. But the thing is, even in Ryan Garcia's loss, he won. He made the most money in his career by far. He's now set up because he proved that he could sell tickets to make so much more money going forward if he continues to win. Now, he can't just go out there and continue to lose, but now they know this guy's a star. This guy can sell tickets. He could be the A-side on a pay-per-view depending on who he fights next. And instead of talking to Ryan in private, you're going back and forth on social media and you're making excuses. So if you weren't, you know, familiar with the back and forth, Ryan was talking about how he was betrayed by his team. And Oscar De La Hoya responded saying that he's the one who accepted the rehydration clause in the contract. And that's the reason he lost the tank. That's not the reason he lost the tank. Now, you could say that it wasn't the wisest thing for him to accept the clause. But also, he wanted to make the fight happen. He wanted to be great. And as a promoter, you never blame your fighter for wanting to be great. And if Tank was really pulling a hard bargain and not wanting the fight to happen without that rehydration clause, you got to suck it up. You got to make it happen. And that's something that, as a promoter, you should be proud of your fighter for making a fight like this happen and making it to where you're a promotion company and you, in extension, made a lot of money off of him. So you wonder if Ryan is going to leave, if he can leave. I don't know what his contract is like with Golden Boy. But it seems like he should try to get out of there and get with a different promoter. But again, it's also on him, right? Because now he's on a different training team. I believe this is his third training team and as many fights when the next fight comes up. So there's some maturing that has to happen on both sides, but with Oscar, it shouldn't be this guy needs to mature. He needs to get better. Like, dude, you're the promoter. Talk to your fighter in private. Yeah, I understand you're upset. Let's talk about this in private.
You got his phone number. You could text him. You got, you, you follow each other. You could DM him. Like, it didn't have to be public. And again, Ryan isn't blameless. But he's the young emotional fighter getting over his first loss. You have to be there as a promoter to support him. You should have been there to support him at the press conference. You say you received death threats. Okay. Not going to call you a liar. But there's extra security measures you can take and still go support your fighter. Why was only like one person there to support Ryan in that post-fight press conference? What? Come on, bro. Come on, man. So stop babying your fighters. Let them try to be great. If they lose, cool. If they lose an attempt to try to be great, ultimately it's a win. At the end of the day, Ryan's going to make so much more money off of this loss than he made off of all his other wins. Because of the effect it's going to have going forward. So that's what you have to think about. So now let's get to a fight with less drama involved. Josh Taylor, Teofimo Lopez for the WBO 140-pound title. Josh Taylor was once undisputed at this weight class, but had to vacate the rest of his belts as he dealt with several different injuries. And we thought we were going to get Josh Taylor versus his last opponent, Jack Catterall. Now, Jack Catterall gave him a tough time. And a lot of people, including myself, thought that Catterall won that fight. I wouldn't call it a robbery. You guys know how I feel about that word. It has to be a really strong case of bad judging for me to say a robbery. This was a close fight between him and Jack Catterall. I had Jack Catterall ahead after the end of the, at the end of the fight. It was a tough fight. Their styles kind of clashed with each other. And Josh Taylor was never comfortable in that fight. And it's been over a year since he's fought. So he's been out of the ring. That's how the last image of him is struggling against Jack Catterall. Our last image of Teofimo Lopez is him struggling against Sandar Martin. A fight where uh, some people say that Martin won, but I had Lopez winning that fight as Martin. I just didn't think was active enough or aggressive enough to win that fight. So now, when you think about the fact that we have these two guys coming off of lackluster wins going against each other. You have to think about the fact that they both have something to prove. And how will they prove that? How will they go and get this victory? Let's break down the keys for Josh Taylor and Teofimo Lopez. All right, key one for Josh Taylor. Stay on the outside. So. Josh Taylor is 5'10 with a 69 and a half inch reach. Not a huge reach advantage, but a one inch reach advantage over Lopez. But he fights better on the outside. When you've seen him have success, it's from distance, where he's able to use angles, keep the fighters at bay, and then when they do come inside, make them pay for it. So the first key is to stay on the outside, use your one two. Even though this is a southpaw versus orthodox matchup, don't get caught up in straight left, straight left, straight left. Use your jab. Keep Lopez off balance. Make him work to get on the inside, right? And then key two is, once he gets on the inside, make him pay. Check right hook, 
left uppercut, left hook. Make him pay with those counter shots and then get out of there. One, two, he comes in, check right hook, maybe a left uppercut, and then you go from there. Get out of there. And then key three, body shots. So when he does come in, if that right hook to the head isn't there, go to the body. Boom, boom, get out of there. So do not be in the pocket too long. Stay on the outside. Make him pay if he does lunge on the inside and try to close that gap in a way where he leaves himself open. Make him pay for it with the check right hook. Make him pay for it with the left uppercut. One of Taylor's highlights is a knockdown against uh, Jose Ramirez where he came in and he caught him with a perfect left uppercut, knocked him down. So he does have that in his game. I think he could do that against Lopez. Now what are the keys for Lopez? Lopez, body work. Try to slow Taylor down. So when you do get on the inside, go to the body. Make him pay. He's a longer guy. Use that against him by going to the body, slow down his movement. Smart aggression is key number two for Tefema Lopez. Do not rush in. If you rush in, you will get hit with the check hook, with the uppercut, with the body shots. Smart aggression, get him against the ropes to where he can't move, cut off the ring. Go to the body, the head will come. Make Taylor uncomfortable. Again, get on the inside. Make it a fight where you smell him. You know what deodorant he's wearing because you smell him. You know what hair grease he's wearing because you know it. You're right there on him. Make him uncomfortable. And then you can land those big shots to the body, which will lead to the big shots to the head. So again, keys for Taylor. Stay on the outside, one, two, one, two. Make him pay once he gets on the inside. Make Lopez pay with the check right hook, left uppercut. Go to the body with quick shots and then get out of the pocket. For Lopez, body work, stay on the inside. That's where your success is gonna be. Smart aggression. Do not lunge, do not leap. Do not try to get on the inside from too far of a range because you will have to pay for that. Make Taylor uncomfortable. Make sure he's not chilling on the outside, having a good time, and in his zone. Make him uncomfortable. Make it a rough and tough night. So, who will win this fight? Oh, earlier, I didn't even get my prediction. Jaime McGee, I got winning by decision over Deverinchenko. For this fight, I'm going to go with Josh Taylor by decision. Close one, unanimous decision, but a good fight. Josh Taylor wins this one. And ESPN and top rank must be expecting a really good turnout as far as attendance and eyes on this fight as far as on TV as well. Because the undercard is really good. So if you are someone who's looking to see the up-and-coming fighters, this card definitely is stacked with them. A co-main event, you have Xander Zayas versus Ronald Cruz. That's a good one. Zayas is somebody who's definitely on the come-up at Super Welterweight. You also have Henry LeBron versus Carlos Ramos at Super Featherweight. LeBron is undefeated. Dude is nice. Check it out. You also have Jermaine Ortiz, who has one loss on his resume to Vasil Lamachenko, young, good fighter on the come up. Uh, Robson Constantin is also on this card. Like This is a stacked card for this one. So I think you guys should definitely check it out. The other card for Megia and Devonchenko is pretty good as well with Shane Mosley Jr. versus Demetrius Ballard. 
on the undercard on that one. So we got two good cards. Even though I'm disappointed in what the main event is in Mugia versus Devonchenko, I think both cards are great overall. So that's the boxing talk for today. And we're going to complete the sandwich with more basketball talk on the back end of this music break. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to The Real Deal with Damian Adams. Hopefully you enjoyed that music break. That was the light by Common Classic right there. So if that last segment seems like it ended a little abruptly, I'm going to take you behind the curtain a little bit. I'm recording this on Tuesday morning and the trash is collected on Tuesday morning in my neighborhood. And I forgot to take it out last night. And at the end of the segment, I was like, oh, snap, let me go take out the trash. Because, you know, you definitely don't want to have to hold on to it for the extra week. You know how it is. So I had to go take it out. And before we get into my top 10 individual playoff runs of all time in the NBA, to finish off the basketball boxing sandwich, I forgot to talk about Clarissa Shields. This past weekend on June 3rd, she continued her undefeated streak for her career. She's now 14-0, and she defended her undisputed middleweight championship against Maricela Cornejo, and this was a whooping. Ten rounds of Clarissa Shields doing whatever she wanted to do. She would pick a different way to beat up Conejo in each round. This round, I'm going to do it with a jab. Next round, let me do it with the right hand. Let me do it with straight right hands. Let me do it with looping right hands. Let me go to the body this time. Let me do some hooks. Let me throw some combinations. Like, she just, whatever she wanted to do, she did. It was a post-to-post, start-to-finish ass-whooping. That's what it was. Uh, Shout-out to Conejo for staying up. I know that uh, Clarissa Shields isn't known for her power. She only has two knockouts in her career. But you got to think she started off taking on the best of the best. She didn't have a few fights of taking on, you know, some tomato cans to build herself up. Because of her amateur status and how she came up, she went in right away against the best of the best. But the thing is, that kind of, I guess, dims her light a little bit. It's not her fault at all is that the best fighters on the women's side of boxing are in the lower weight classes. So her last three fights have been at 160. She's also fought at 168 before and at 154 a couple of times, but it seems like she's most comfortable at 160. The best fighters in women's boxing are 147 and below. Right, look at 147 with Chantel Cameron and Jessica McCaskill. You look below that with Katie Taylor and Amanda Serrano and Alicia Bumgarner and Erica Cruz and so many fighters who are really good to great at those lower weight classes. So you hope that some more fighters come up that are above 147 for Clarissa to fight to give her a real challenge because Conejo was the number one ranked contender in three of the sanctioning bodies. So she wasn't a bum. She's not trash by any means. But Shields made her look like she was trash. It's the old Roy Jones Jr. line. They got the nerve to say I don't fight nobody. I just make them look like nobody. Y'all must have forgot. That's what Clarissa Shields is going through right now. She's not fighting nobody. She's fighting the best of the best that boxing has to offer at those weight classes. She's just better. 
right? Like, honestly, the best person she's fought so far may be from her first fight when she fought against uh, Francine Cruz Desern. If I'm saying her name wrong, I apologize. But she's really good, and she'll be fighting against Savannah Marshall soon. And the winner of that fight most likely will fight against Clarissa Shields. So we need more female boxers. They're out there and they're around those weight classes between 154 and 168 who could truly challenge Shields. We need that. Because Shields is going to probably go back to MMA because that's where she can find more of a challenge and another way to make money, another you know revenue stream. So shout out to Clarissa Shields, man. She probably is the GWOT, right? The greatest women's boxer of all time. But it's hard for her to say that because she hasn't had the challenges that a Katie Taylor has or that Alicia Baumgartner will or that Amanda Serrano has and will because the better competition is at those lower weight classes. So part of me is like, damn, I wish we had better competition for her. But we do have to appreciate the dominance that she is displaying and know that it's not her fault. And for people saying that she needs to get more knockouts, again, she's going against the best of the best. If you watch the fight, Conejo took some crazy shots. Like, I'm talking about, you could tell that Clarissa Shields wanted that knockout in her hometown. She fought in Detroit, or right outside Detroit, and really wanted that knockout. And Conejo, I joked that she probably had money on the fight going the distance because she was not going down. Didn't matter how hard she got hit, how hard her neck snapped back, she was going to stay up. Uh, so all the respect in the world to Clarissa Shields. She's one of the best boxers in the world, period. Men are women. We just need to find her some competition, honestly. You know, I don't know if it's going to take one of the smaller fighters moving up. You don't want to see Shields trying to, you know starve herself to get down to 147 to fight and then at that point she would be a weight bully because we know she's just naturally bigger she's got broader shoulders she's 5'8 she's just naturally going to be bigger than the women at those weight classes so for her man I just hope that we get some competition for her to really be challenged because I want her to really have a chance to prove how great she truly is she's already doing that but I want her to be challenged. That's normally when we see or when the public really acknowledges somebody's greatness is when they're challenged. Muhammad Ali was already acknowledged as great, but once he lost to Joe Frazier and came back from that, that's when we acknowledge his greatness. Floyd Mayweather never lost, but he had his challenges. He had the fight against Jose Luis Castillo. He had those fights where it was close. Where he's like, okay, and plus we knew he was taking on the best of the best. With Clarissa Shields, She's taking on the best of the best. She just happens to be three levels above her competition right now. So now let's get into our top ten playoff runs of all time. Now, what made me think of this was Nikola Jokic. Nikola Jokic is going on an all-time heater in these playoffs. And if he's able to finish it off by defeating the Heat, this will be one of the greatest playoff runs of all time. So it made me think, let me go back to my list of my top 10 playoff runs of all time. Let's start with number 10. Number 10, I have Tim Duncan in 2003. You think about the run they had, right? They beat the Phoenix Suns, and that's where, you know, Stephon Marbury and a young Amari Stoudemire and those guys. 
And you remember they won the first game off a crazy buzzer beater. The Suns did. Stephon Marbury from like half court into who win that series. But then, of course, to start that series, excuse me, then, of course, the Spurs took over. They also had to get past Kobe Bryant and Shaq, who were coming off of back-to-back-to-back championships in the second round. And then the conference finals defeated Dirk Nowinski and Steve Nash as they got past the Dallas Mavericks. And in that playoff run, Tim Duncan, he averaged 24.7 points per game, 15.3 rebounds, while shooting 52.8% from the floor. And you know he was playing lockdown defense, protecting the rim. And 2003, that was David Robinson's last year, if I remember correctly. So this is when Tim Duncan was truly taking over as the guy. He came in right away his rookie year as the guy, but at this point, David Robinson was no longer close to being prime David Robinson, and Tim Duncan was truly that dude in 2003. So that's number 10, Tim Duncan in 2003. Number 9, Dwayne Wade, 2006. Now, this was only his third year in the NBA. That's what really makes this so special, is that at such a young age, he was ready to take on that mantle of being the guy and showed up, man. And I remember the his rookie year. So not the year before, but the first year of his career before they got Shaq, where in the playoffs, he went against my New Orleans Hornets at the time, which, of course, turned to the Pelicans. And him and Baron Davis went back and forth. And he outdueled a prime Baron Davis in the playoffs. And I was like, yo, this dude's for real. Wait till they get him some help. And they got Shaq. And the first year, they lost to Detroit in the playoffs. But then that second year, they were able to go all the way. And he was so good throughout the entire playoff run. And the conference finals, he went against Detroit, who, you know, early to mid-2000s, they were that team in the Eastern Conference. And in that series, he averaged 26.7 points per game, 5.2 rebounds, 5.5 assists, while shooting 61% from the floor against a great defensive team. Like, like everybody remembers the finals, but the conference finals Dwayne Wade had was off the charts. And then he took it up to an even higher level in the finals where he averaged 34.7 points per game, 7.8 rebounds, and 4 assists per game. He shot 46% from the floor as he led the Heat back from a 2-0 deficit. And remember, in Game 3, it looks like they were done. And in the second half, he went crazy. We started that run. So at number 9, I have Dwayne Wade, 2006. At number 8, now this is from 1980. I should have said that at the beginning. These are my top 10 playoff runs since 1980. So, there's any, you know, Bill Walton's not going to be in there. Or Wes Unsell, anybody from the 70s and before won't be in there. So, number 8, I have Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, 1980. Now, a lot of the young fans out there may not remember how dominant Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was. We've all been reminded because LeBron was able to break his scoring record this year. 
and it gave us a good chance to give Kareem his flowers about how dominant he was as a player and the fact that he had the scoring record for damn near 40 years shows you a little something, right? And he wasn't just dominant during the regular season. He was also dominant during the playoffs. And in that 1980 playoff run, he was off the charts, right? So during that playoff run, he averaged 32 points and 12 rebounds per game and shot 57.3% from the floor. Uh, in the finals, he averaged 33.4 points per game, 13.6 rebounds per game, while shooting 55% from the floor. Uh, he should have won finals MVP, but Magic Johnson won it. And on the show Winning Time on HBO, waiting for season two, I'm definitely hyped for that. On that show, which is about the 1980s Lakers, they said that Kareem was supposed to get it, but because he wasn't there for the game, the game, the final game in Game Six, and Magic Johnson, of course, went crazy in that game. They gave it to Magic, even though it should have went to Kareem. But that playoff run was ridiculous. You're talking about a prime Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, still had the hair on his head. Skyhook unstoppable, blocking shots, dunking on you, everything. Dude was amazing. That's number eight, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in 1980. Number seven, Magic Johnson, 1987. Crazy playoff run. Uh, we have all seen the highlight from game four, the baby Skyhook right in front of the free throw line against the Celtics. And... Magic Johnson was responsible for so much of the offense, right? Now you're looking at his averages during the playoffs that year, 21 points a game, 12.2 assists, 7.6 rebounds per game while shooting 54.2% from the floor. And then in the finals, he turned up even more, averaging 26.2 points per game, 13 assists, 8 rebounds, while shooting 54.2% from the floor to beat Larry Bird and the Celtics. Crazy playoff run. Magic Johnson, one of the best players of all time. Before all time on my list. And definitely because some time has passed, people are starting to forget how great Magic was. And I get the Steph Curry hype about being best point guard of all time. But when you look at the impact that Magic had, not just scoring, but getting assists, getting rebounds, controlling the game, I don't think any point guard did it better than Magic Johnson. At number six, I got Shaquille O'Neal, 2000. Man, <laughs> talk about dominance. Talk about somebody who was truly unstoppable. Uh, and there was a clip going around on the internet from Richard Jefferson. He was on J.J. Reg's podcast. He talked about how Draymond Green and others have talked about how they would attack Shaq if Shaq played today. And Richard Jefferson was like, there's no guarding Shaq. Shaq's not going to come out there and, you know, switch on the pick and roll or be good at hedging and guarding Steph Curry and Kevin Durant. No, but no one's going to stop Shaq. 
No one in, today, in today's game, not even Joel Embiid or Joker or Giannis, the big men that you think of that are great defenders. Joker not a great defender, but you know what I mean. The big men who have the size. No one's going to stop Shaq. You just got to look at some of the pictures from back then, right? Now, I know when he played the Nets, that was in 2000. That year it was against the Pacers in the finals. But that picture of him dunking on all five New Jersey Nets in the finals just epitomizes the dominance that Shaq had during that time. And during the 2000 playoff run, you got to remember that's the year he won MVP. So he was already coming off a dominant regular season. And hadn't shown in the playoffs yet. You got to remember prior to that, Shaq would get swept every year in the playoffs. So this was the year Shaq had to really come through and show it. And he was so dominant throughout this playoff run. He averaged 30.8 points per game, 15.6 rebounds, and shot 56% from the floor. Just an amazing playoff run. You got to think about some of the clutch moments they had during the playoff run where they were able to get past the Sacramento Kings with Chris Webber and White Chocolate. Get past the Phoenix Suns. This is the Jason Kidd blonde hair era of Phoenix Suns. They got past with, you know, older Penny Hardaway. Had that crazy series against Portland where they were down 15 in game seven and had to come through at the end and then close it off by beating Reggie Miller, Jalen Rose, and the Indiana Pacers. Just couldn't do nothing with that guy, man. So number six, I have Shaq, 2000. Number five, I have Akeem Olajuwon, 1995. Crazy playoff run. So this was a weird year because Houston was the defending champs, but they were the sixth seed going into the playoffs. So it's not like they had you know, an easy, quote-unquote, eight seed to go against to start off the playoffs. They had to go in right away against John Stockton, Carl Malone, and the Utah Jazz, who were getting ready to become the best team in the West. And they beat them in that first round. Then the second round, able to get past Charles Barkley and the Phoenix Suns in a great series. And then after that, taking on the regular season MVP, David Robinson, and putting him in a torture chamber. We all seen the highlights of the Dream Shake and David Robinson looking lost. And this is prime David Robinson at his best, looking lost against Kim Elijah one. And then in the finals, sweeping Shaquille O'Neal, Penny Hardaway, and the Orlando Magic. Uh, during that playoff run, Elijah one averaged 33.1 points per game, 10.4 rebounds, and 4.5 assists while also being a menace on the defensive end. And he shot 53% from the floor. What? Craziness. Right there, man. Absolute craziness. So we're going to go ahead and take our last music break. But just to recap, 10 through 5. Number 10, I have Tim Duncan, 2003. Number 9, Dwayne Wade, 2006. Number 8, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, 1980. Number 7, Magic Johnson, 1987. Number six, Shaquille O'Neal, 2000. And number five, Hakeem Olajuwon, 1995. So we're going to count down four through one on the back end of this break. We'll be right back.
block. You either working or you slinging cocaine on my block. You had to hustle, cause that's how we was raised on my block. And you stayed on your hop until you made you a knock on my block. To hang out was the thing back then. And even when you left out, you came back in to my block from Holloway. Welcome back to The Real Deal with Damian Adams. Hopefully you enjoyed that music break. So prior to the music break, we were counting down my top 10 individual playoff runs of all time. This is NBA. So let me just give you a recap of what we did so far. Number 10, Tim Duncan, 2003. That playoff run, he averaged 24.7 points per game, 15.3 rebounds, while shooting 52 0.8% from the floor as he led the Spurs past the Phoenix Suns 
Los Angeles Lakers and Dallas Mavericks in 03. Dwayne Wade, 2006, very impressive run, especially for a third-year player as he led the Miami Heat past the Bulls, the New Jersey Nets that was, the Richard Jefferson, Vince Carter, Jason Kidd Nets, and the Detroit Pistons. And in the NBA Finals, beating the Dallas Mavericks while averaging 34.7 points per game, 7.8 rebounds, and 4 assists while shooting 46% from the floor, leading them from a 2-0 deficit. Number 8, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, 1980. Uh, this was a great playoff run by him. And he helped lead the Lakers to the NBA championship. And during that playoff run, man, he was just absolutely amazing where he averaged 32 points a game and 12 rebounds while shooting 57.3% from the floor. Number seven, Magic Johnson, 1987. My man led the Lakers to the NBA championship, averaging 21 points, 12.2 assists per game, and 7.6 rebounds while shooting 54.2% from the floor. And then he would amp it up in the finals to 26.2 points per game, 13 assists, and 8 rebounds per game while shooting 54% from the floor. Best point guard of all time. Number six, it had Shaq. The year was 2000. Just so dominant. Leading the Lakers past the Kings, past the Suns, and past the series with the epic series with the Portland Trailblazers. And then finishing off by beating the Pacers in the finals. In the finals, averaging 30 and 15 on 56% shooting from the floor. And then number five was Akeem Olajuwon, 1995. Just epic playoff run. Huge moments getting past Charles Barkley, David Robinson, along his way to sweeping Shaq and Penny in the finals, averaging 33 points per game, 10.4 rebounds, and 4.5 and assists while shooting 53% from the floor during that run. So now let's get to number four, Giannis Antetokounmpo, 2021. Uh, this is the most recent one on my list. And that may change this year as Joker may enter the list. But Giannis, man, that playoff run was absolutely crazy. Uh, for the entire playoff run, he averaged 29.2 points per game, 12.7 rebounds, and shot or average again. 5.4 assists per game while shooting 56% from the floor. He led the Bucks past Jerry Butler in the Heat. Kevin Durant and the Brooklyn Nets in a crazy series. We all remember how that one went. And then Trey Young and the Atlanta Hawks in the Eastern Conference Finals. In the Finals, they found themselves down 2-0 to Chris Paul, Devin Booker, and the Phoenix Suns. And the thing is, he was playing after hyper extending his knee against the Hawks and somehow still in the NBA Finals averaged 35.2 points per game 13.2 rebounds and 5 assists per game to help them come back from a 2-0 deficit and lead Milwaukee to their first championship since Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was in that jersey that's number 4 number 3 Dirk Nowinski 2011 Crazy playoff run right there. And it's ironic that this beat comes on because Dirk Nowinski was truly at a crossroads. 
at this time in his career. He had already established himself as a superstar, right? Dirk was one of the best scorers in the league and turns out by the end one of the best scorers in league history. But they still had that soft European thing out there, right? White European players, they weren't tough. They flopped like a Vladi Divox or they just didn't come through in clutch moments like Dirk didn't come through in the 06 finals or the next year when they were supposed to be the best team in the league, they lost in the first round to the Golden State Warriors. He had a year against New Orleans Hornets where David West seemed to punk him. So by the time 2011 came around, it was like, Dirk, at this point you gotta show us something, bro. Coming towards the end of your prime, you need to go ahead and really capitalize on your talent. And boy did he. Uh, he came through in a major way and he really changed his reputation forever. So they got past uh, Portland in the first round and then in the second round they took on the two-time defending champion Los Angeles Lakers and swept Kobe Bryant, Pal Gasol, Andrew Bynum and those guys dominated that series and then took on the young up-and-coming Oklahoma City Thunder, Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook, James Harden, Serge Ibaka, all those guys and beat them in a very good series. And then you're going against Miami. This is LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh. This is the team that's destined to win championships. You know, not five, not six, not seven. That squad. And Dirk, along with, you know, Dallas's great adjustments and coaching, found a way to beat the Miami Heat. During that playoff run, Dirk averaged 27.7 points per game and 8.1 rebounds while shooting 49% from the floor, 47% from the free from the three-point line, and 94% from the free throw line. So 49, 47, 94 splits. Nuts. Absolutely nuts what Dirk Nowinski was able to do that season as his team pulled off one of the biggest upsets in finals history, knocking off the Miami Heat. Number two. Michael Jeffrey Jordan, 1993. So you got to think about, this is Jordan at the peak of his powers. He's still super athlete, Michael Jordan. And he's adding all those skills that he became known for. The fadeaway jumper, the handle, all those things have been included into his game. And he's truly unstoppable. And there's a lot of pressure, right? If you're a two-time defending champion, you're expected to three-peat. And teams are giving you their best shot. But throughout those playoffs, man, he was an absolute machine. Averaging 34.6 points per game, 6.6 rebounds, and 5.7 assists per game while shooting 48% from the floor. And then in the finals, he averaged 41 points a game. 8.5 rebounds and 6.3 assists per game to get past Charles Barkley and the Phoenix Suns. And Charles Barkley was at his apex at this time, just coming off an MVP award. So you're talking about Charles Barkley at his best, a very good Phoenix Suns team that 
Jordan needed to be at his absolute best to beat, and that's what you saw. Great playoff run from Jordan. And you could pick other years from his career, but I believe 93 was his best playoff run. So now we get to number one. Who had the best playoff run of all time? Uh, this is the only one that didn't end in a championship that's on the list. And that shows you how great it was. LeBron James, 2018. Yo, that playoff run was absolutely ridiculous. He had made so many clutch shots. We all remember the runner off the backboard on the left side against Toronto. Like, he just was on one in those playoffs, man. And it's just ridiculous what he was doing. So during that run, he averaged 34 points a game, 9 rebounds, and 9.3 assists per game. And he shot 53.6% from the floor. Crazy. Now, a lot of people may disagree with this selection at number one because Cleveland did get swept in the finals by just a better team in the Golden State Warriors, right? But you got to remember that's the Golden State Warriors with Kevin Durant added on to Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, Draymond Green, and the guys. But in those finals, LeBron averaged 34 points a game, 8.5 rebounds, and 10 assists per game while shooting 52% from the floor. Game one of those finals, he put up maybe the best game you're ever going to see in the finals. 51 points, 8 assists, and 8 rebounds while shooting 59% from the floor. Now that game, of course, is remembered for the meme that lives on forever because J.R. Smith had a, a brain fart and forgot what the situation was at that moment and didn't shoot the ball back up when he should have and tried to bring the ball back out which led to this game going to overtime and Cleveland losing. If they win game one, no telling what could happen the rest of that series but I still think Golden State probably would have won in five to be honest with you. But that playoff run was absolutely ridiculous from what he did carrying that squad. You gotta remember Kyrie Irving was no longer on his team. So this is LeBron with Kevin Love as the second best guy carrying this team to the NBA Finals. Like, he was on a whole different level that year, man. So to go back through my top 10 playoff runs of all time. Number 10, Tim Duncan, 2003. Number 9, Dwayne Wade, 2006. Number 8, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, 1980. I keep saying all time. I should say since 1980. So don't get mad at me if you don't have, you know, if you're an old head out there and I don't have Bill Walton or, you know, Willis Reed or somebody like that. I do have respect for them. I just didn't want to go back that far. So I went back to 1980. So again, number 10, Tim Duncan, 2003. Nine was Dwayne Wade, 2006. Eight, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, 1980. Seven. Magic Johnson, 1987. Six, Shaquille O'Neal, 2000. Five, Hakeem Olajuwon, 1995. Number four, Giannis Antetokounmpo, 2021. Number three, Dirk Nowitzki, 2011. Two, Michael Jordan, 1993. Number one, LeBron James, 2018. Uh, some of the runs that just missed the cut 
LeBron 07, LeBron 2012, LeBron 2016, uh, Michael Jordan 92, 96, uh, Kevin Durant 2017, 2018, Steph Curry 2015, uh, Kobe Bryant 01, 02, 09, Allen Iverson 01, uh, Moses Malone 83. There's so many great playoff runs throughout history. I couldn't couldn't include everybody, but I think my top 10 is pretty good. If you agree, let me know. If you disagree, let me know. I would truly appreciate it. Hopefully, you enjoyed today's episode. Uh, this is therapy for me, being able to talk to you guys. Hopefully, you find me entertaining. And until next time, go real or go home.